3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to another episode of 3AM Tales of Terror where we tell you stories of the paranormal and we're currently telling you stories of, uh, or the story of Amityville still. Um, I'm Jamie. And I'm Kenny. Yep. And so I was looking back, I was going to try and recap for you guys, but the only thing that I can really like (laughs) remember, because it's been a minute since I read it, is that... So Kathy thinks the house is haunted. She's coming to her senses. Well, well, the thing is, is she keeps asking George. She's like, do you think this house is haunted? Like, yes, it's fucking haunted. He's like, like, nah, ain't nothing (laughs) weird going on, y'all. And I don't know what she meant by, uh, do you think our TM had anything to do with this? What is that? Do you know? The only thing that I had wrote down and was going to ask you about was... Transcendental transcend, transcendental meditation. That's right. They were doing meditation. Okay. That's right. That's I thought right. it had something to do with meditation, but I was like, I don't know what the T... Transcendental. Yeah. It's something It's something weird that Kathy wanted to do. I don't I don't know why. No, no, no. They've always done it. Yeah, but she, she got George into it, I believe, like a long time ago. Oh, yeah. But um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about before I forget again, because I wrote it down like um, two weeks ago, uh-huh. was what did you think about the weird embraces that Kathy was having? Like the, 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 the woman who was like wrapping around her body or, well, it, I don't know if it was a woman or not, but she, she felt like. Well, she- it's, it's sweet smelling perfume and it's in the kitchen. So the assumption would be for the time period, it's the mother. Okay. That would be the assumption. What she's probably trying to do is... Like, I don't think she's trying to scare her. I think she's trying to soothe her. Not warn her. I think it's more of a, hey, man, just chill out. You know, it'll be okay. Yeah. And then when she starts trying to fight it and getting aggressive and angry, that's when it grabs her. Yeah. Well, I don't know, because the last time that it happened to her, it was like, she didn't... I thought she said that it didn't feel like a ma- like a, a woman anymore. It felt like a man. Yeah, but she also felt two sets of hands. Okay. She was grabbed from the front and the back. The mm. woman grabbed her from the back and the man grabbed her from the front. Ooh. So maybe the woman, whoever it is, is trying to, like, not really protect her, but, like... Coax her into... Be there for her, and then... I think it's more of a coaxing. Yeah, like making her comfortable. Like, hey, chill out while we slit your throat. Don't be, don't be yeah, weird. I know. Don't make it weird. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're going to keep going. We're just going to um, do the same thing that we've been doing. So normally what we do is we read for about an hour and a half, and then I edit out the little bits and stuff that needed to be edited, and then... Um, we just don't want to make the episodes too, too long. Yeah. And I know so, this is becoming a lot of multi-parts, but it's so good and we have to talk about it. Yeah. And so I think we'll get about, we're, we're just going to read like we have been reading. And wherever we get to, we'll just put it in the last part. So it'll be five parts. Uh, I hope that's okay. And then we'll go back to doing, we'll do something, we'll do other stuff. 
we won't probably read a book like this for a while. Yeah, we'll go back or to if, our if normal schedule again. programming. Yeah, <laughs> if ever again. Um, Why do you not like it? No, I don't. I do. It's just I. I don't want people to be bored. Like all we do is read it from a fucking book. Yeah, because if if all we're doing is reading from a book, people well, it, people can go do that on Audible. Yeah, but <laughs> like, it turns into more. So this is it's such a famous case. Yeah. Like, how do you get sources for Amityville that aren't either intertwined with the movies, which mm-hmm. are movies, the multiple movies? Well, my thing is, is when I was looking it up. There wasn't, there wasn't enough information on how I wanted to break down the days and what happened in the house. Well, right, because they wrote a book about it. So right. You... So that's why, and then I, that's why I just read the book. And that way you get information that you probably don't know. We get information that we probably don't know. Oh, I'm learning stuff about Amityville. Exactly. No so... Um, so we're on January 4th to 5th. I'm going to start this time. Okay. And he's going to start this time. Okay. Yeah, bitches. Prepare yourself. And that damn lion. (laughs) They just need to get rid of that lion. She wanted to throw it out, but George said no. Remember, she was going to toss it and he put it upstairs in the sewing room, which she's not allowed in. Whatever. He's, whatever. I don't, he's getting on my nerves. (laughs) Well, I mean, he's having the life force sucked out of him. Oh, so, my I gosh. Mean, fairness. George grabbed the line off the living room table and threw it into the garbage can outside of the house. There you go. Answered. Oh, finally. Literally first sentence. Okay, but mm. no, you you, you need to take it further away from the house. <laughs> it took him quite a while to calm Kathy down because he couldn't possibly explain how the porcelain piece had managed to come back down from the sewing room. She insisted that something in the house had done it and didn't want to spend another minute in 112 Ocean Ave. George had confided to Kathy that he too felt uneasy about the lion's sudden reappearance, but he couldn't agree on running away without taking a chance at fighting back. How can you fight what you can't see, Kathy asked. This this thing can do anything it wants. No, honey, George said. There's no way you can convince me a lot of this isn't just our imagination. I just don't believe in spooks. No way, no how, no time. So he's a dumbass. Clearly. You, he's, you, he's white. I'm going to shoot the ghost. Bitch with what? This ain't supernatural. Cause you are works. not. Because this works. <laughs> You're not. What is what is their name? This, Sam and Dean? You're not Sam and Dean. The Winchesters? Yeah. Like. Well, I mean, you know, this upper high class suburban white man is going to fight these ghosts. <laughs> Oh my God! What is, what is it that Sam and Dean use? They um, like salt powder, like salt balls Whoa. or something like it that. It depends on what they're fighting. Have you ever watched a single episode? Of I watched like five seasons, and then I stopped. Well, then you would know. It depends on what you're fighting. I watched up until the apocalypse. No. So I don't know if that was like four or five. I don't know. It's spoiler alert for anybody, by the way. What? Oh, did I ruin it? Some people don't watch Supernatural. No, I mean, it's going to kind of happen. Oh, well. They talk about it, you know, the end of time just For me, the apocalypse got, like, super dragged out, and I didn't like it. No, mine was season eight with the uh, Leviathans. Oh. That was getting boring with season eight. Season eight or seven. I don't know. The Leviathans. But anyway, uh, yeah, it depends. Oh, okay. But this man probably doesn't own a pistol. Uh, 
might. No, he spent all his money on motorcycles and boats in the, you know. Well, maybe not, actually, because it's never been mentioned. So anyway, yeah, I'm going to take this revolver and I'm going to shoot the ghost that's just conveniently standing in front of my wife. Man, these white people crazy. (laughs) Finally, he talked Kathy into going up to bed with a promise that if he couldn't get help by the next day, they would get out of the house for a while. They both were completely drained. Kathy fell asleep out of sheer exhaustion. George dozed off, waking every once in a while to listen groggily for an unnatural noise in the house. He says that he has no idea how long he had lain there before he heard the marching music downstairs. His head was keeping time to the drum beats before he realized he was listening to music. Glancing at Kathy to see if she had been awakened, he heard her breathe deeply. She was fast asleep. George ran out of the room into the hall and heard the stomp of marching feet get louder. There must be at least 50 musicians parading around the first floor, he thought. But the moment he hit the bottom step and turned on the hall light, the sound ceased. George froze on the staircase, his eyes and head swiveling frantically to catch any sign of movement. There was absolutely no one there. It was as though he had walked into an echo chamber after the cacophony of sound and sudden silence sent chills up his back. Then George heard heavy breathing and thought someone was right behind him. He spun around, no one was there, and he then realized he was listening to Kathy from all the way upstairs. Fear of her being alone in the bedroom galvanized George. He raced back up the steps, two at a time, and into his room, turning on the light. There, floating two feet above the bed, was Kathy. She was slowly drifting away from him toward the windows. Kathy! George yelled, jumping on the bed to grab his wife. She was as stiff as a boar in his hands, but her drifting stopped. George felt a resistance to his pull, then a sudden release of pressure, and he and Kathy fell heavily off the bed onto the floor. The fall awakened her. I'd hope so. <laughs> so I remember that this happened. Like I remember her being lifted off the bed. I remember like hearing about that cuz that was one of like the biggest things was like, yeah, she got lifted off the bed. So, but I I never like I don't know, I'm excited to go deeper cuz I've never I don't think I ever like delved into it more to figure out like what was going on. Right. Even though they don't they probably don't even know. When she saw where she was, Kathy was incoherent for a moment. "Where am I?" she cried. "What's happened?" George started to help her up. She could hardly stand. It's nothing, he reassured her. You were having a dream and fell out of bed. That's all. (sighs) (laughs) Kathy was still too dazed to question George any further. She said, oh, meekly got back into bed and immediately fell back into a deep sleep. That motherfucker. George turned out the light in the room, but did not return to his wife's side. He sat on a chair beside the windows, watching Kathy and looking out at the lightning of the sky in the early morning. Why would he not tell her, dude? He probably... <clears throat> okay, so one of two things is my thought process here. One, she's already mentioned wanting to get out of the house. <clears throat> and two, like... So, okay, so she's already mentioned wanting to get out of the house. Right. And if he tells her what happened, if she's like, bitch, you was floating in the air, she's going to be like, okay, I'm gone now. Like, we're getting the kids right this second. And they probably have nowhere to go, which means they're going to spend more money in a hotel or whatever. And the other option, and, and, and so he just doesn't want to, like, scare her like that. I don't, I don't know. No, I think what it is is it's selfish, and he's like, well... 
I tell my wife she was floating, she's going to take the kids and she's going to leave. And I'm either going to be stuck in this house alone, which I do not want to do. Or I'm going to have to leave too. Or I'm going to have to leave too and I'm going to be defeated. And then, you know, I have to worry about all the money and all that shit. Right. So that was my other, that was my other, like, one of two things. So either way, either option, he's still psycho. Yeah, don't be a George. Don't be a George. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, just don't be a George man. It's not. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. It always goes so good when people are like, "It was the wind." No, it was nothing. Don't even worry about it. It's fine. Nothing oh has ever. Nothing bad has ever happened. When people say stuff like that. Yeah, and first of all, like the marching band. First, I had never, I never like heard that about the house before. I, uh, maybe I don't remember. I don't recall ever like learning about that happening. So how does he go, how did he just go from like, oh, I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking that I'm listening to music, but it's actually coming from the inside of my house, and he goes downstairs and it gets louder, and no one's there, and he just, he, I don't, I don't know how he just goes from that thought process one second. So I don't, I just don't know how he went from like that, like, thought process of, oh, I'm just listening to music, and then like, goes downstairs and doesn't see anybody and still hears the music and then thinks he's crazy. I mean, he is crazy, but... I don't know. I don't question his actions anymore. He's very not all there, obviously. It's the house. I think he was a dumbass beforehand. Probably. I wouldn't have bought the house, in fairness. Oh my god, we're getting such a good deal. Yeah, I You walk up to a mansion that's supposed to be worth $500,000. They have it marked for $200,000. My first question is, who died? Yeah, but that's the thing is they knew. They found out about it and they still went and bought the house. Well, this is all self-inflicted. Yeah. This is the meme of the uh, George is on the bicycle. He takes the stick and rams it into the spokes and falls off and hurts his knee. And he's like, ah, blasted house. Oh, my God. Yeah. Father Mancuso was also watching the new daybreak from his mother's house in, Nos- in Nassau where he had gone shortly after the altercation with his pastor. Not that he was afraid of a continued outburst, but it had been impossible to sleep in his stench-filled, incense-smoked apartment. Also, he now truly believed that he was the target of the demonic phenomenon and thought that the odor would go if he left and the rectory for, left the rectory for a while. At first, Father Mancuso had misgivings about being in his mother's home, because he didn't want to involve her in his problem. But then he had begun to feel feverish and decided that if he was to be sick again, he'd rather be under her care. He hadn't had much sleep and awakened a few minutes before dawn. He felt his palms itching and looked at his hands to examine both sides. He considered talking to his mother, but he didn't want to upset her further. She was already deeply concerned about his illness. The skies were laced with a long with long streaks of white clouds he noted they were low and moving fast with the cold spell still holding in the low teens that could mean more snow father mancuso turned away from the window and looked at the clock on the nightstand it was only 7 a.m i'd like to call george lutz he thought to find out if the mass caused any similar reaction in his house but no seven might be too early father mancuso decided to wait a while and go back to bed it was nice and warm under the covers. Sleepily, he heard his mother stirring in the kitchen and suddenly he was ten years old, waiting for her to call him to get up for school. The recent pains, aches, and humiliations fled from his mind and body. Father Mancuso was sleeping safely in his old bed in his mother's house. 
By 10 in the morning, Kathy was still in a deep sleep. George had become worried about her condition after the past night's terrifying experience. He couldn't wait any longer. He had to call Father Mancuso again. Danny and Chris had told their father that they heard on the radio that the Amityville schools were closed because of a heating problem. They were somewhat disappointed because it would have been their first day at their new school after the Christmas holidays and a chance to meet some new friends. George thought he was lucky not to have to drive the boys to school. It was clear across town, and he hadn't really wanted to leave Kathy and Missy alone in the house. He fed the children their breakfast and sent them up to play in their bedrooms. Then he looked, on, he looked in on Kathy. Her face was pale, drawn with deep lines around her mouth. He didn't want to awaken her and went back down to the kitchen. When he saw that it was 11 a.m., George decided to call the priest. When he dialed Father Mancuso's private number, there was no answer. George called the rectory itself and was informed that Father Mancuso was visiting his mother. No, they couldn't give out her number, but would give Father Mancuso the message that George had called. <clears throat> George sat in the kitchen the rest of the morning, waiting for the return call. He thought he had been a fool to mouth off about not believing in spooks. Kathy was right. How the hell can you fight something that you can, that can lift you clear off the bed like a stick of wood? George Lutz, ex-Marine, admitted he was scared. That marine mentality. That's what it is. Has he? It hasn't been mentioned that he was a marine before. Not that I can remember, at least. Yeah, so that's what it is. He's just fucking stubborn. Kathy came downstairs just as the telephone rang. It was George's office, calling to ask when he was coming in. The IRS agent was due back, and they did not know how George wanted to handle the situation. George squirmed. Finally, he told his bookkeeper to call their accountant and postpone the appointment until the following week. As for his coming in, he said Kathy didn't feel well and they were waiting for the doctor. Kathy sat next to George at the kitchen table and looked strangely at her husband. She mouthed the word, doctor, to him. George shook his head at her and ended the call by telling his office he'd get back to them later. Boy, he said to Kathy, are they ever getting fed up with me? I'll just have to go in tomorrow. Kathy yawned at George and she shrugged her shoulders in an effort to ease the stiffness in her body. God, she said, look at the time. Why'd you let me sleep so long? Have the kids eaten? Are the boys in school? George started counting on his fingers. First, he answered, you haven't slept so good in weeks, so I left you alone. He held up two fingers. Yes, they ate breakfast. Three fingers. There was no school today. I sent them up to play with Missy. Good, he thought to himself. Kathy hadn't remembered anything. About what happened last night, and I'm not going to tell her. I've been trying to get a hold of Father Mancuso again, said George. They say he's at his mother's, but he'll call me as soon as he hears from me. Father Mancuso's mother didn't disturb his needed rest until almost three in the afternoon. He knew his fever had dropped because he no longer had a light-headed feeling. The priest was due doubly pleased when he finally checked in with the rectory. The priest who answered the phone said that the incense had driven out the horrible smells and that Father Mancuso could return to his room. Father, also George Lutz called you. Oh yes, he reminded himself. I meant to call him, but it completely slipped my mind. Father Mancuso said he'd return by evening, and then he'd call George. The phone was picked up on the first ring. George, this is Father Mancuso. Father, I'm glad you called. We must talk to you right away. Can you please come over here right now? But I've already blessed your house again, Father Mancuso answered. I said a votive mass for you at the church the other day. And by the way, did any... It's not to bless the house, George interrupted. It's more than that now. 
For the next several minutes, George recounted what had happened at 112 Ocean Ave since he had moved in. He sent Kathy upstairs under the pretext of getting him her cigarettes and then told the priest about her levitating. That's why we need you, Father, George concluded. I'm scared on what's going to happen to Kathy and the kids. All through George's recitation, Father Mancuso had feared a debilitating attack. Now he was ashamed to realize that he had been avoiding the inevitable. Come on, man, he thought to himself. You're a priest. If I don't want to wear the collar and accept its responsibilities, why, by God, I'm not worthy? Father Mancuso took a deep breath. All right, George, I'll try and get there, too. George didn't hear what Father Mancuso said next. Suddenly, there were several loud moans on the line and then a crackling that almost shattered his eardrum. Father, Father, can you hear me? I can't hear you. A continued moaning was the only answer George got. On the other end, Father Mancuso felt as if he had been physically slapped in the face. He put down the telephone, put his hand on his cheek, and began to cry. I'm afraid to go back there. He looked at his sore palms and then buried his face within them. Oh God, help me. Help me. George knew it was useless to wait for Father Mancuso to call back. Even if he did, they would have been prevented from talking to one another about the house. But George had one hope. He was sure he had heard the priest say he'd come, but he didn't know when. He'd just have to sit there and wait. Father Mancuso returned to the rectory after eight in the evening. Now it was almost ten o'clock, and the priest sat and stared at the telephone. The smell of excrement had gone from his quarters, as he had been told, but the acrid sting of incense still hung in the air. That he could tolerate. What he couldn't, uh, what he couldn't stand was the inability was his inability to go to the Lutzes. Even the thought of the children being in danger from the demonic behavior couldn't overcome his fear of what might await him at 112 Ocean Ave. Finally, Father Mancuso decided he would call the Chancellor's office in the diocese. He picked up the telephone, but thought he would go see them in the morning instead. He then prepared to go to bed. He had had enough sleep that morning at his mother's, but was exhausted again. Before putting on his pajamas... He went into the bathroom to remove the white gloves. The burrow solution had helped soothe the affliction, and he wanted to soak his palms once more that night. When he peeled off the gloves, he was stunned. He turned his hands over and examined his palms. There were no more ugly splotches or open sores. There was no signs of bleeding. The blisters were gone. Kathy had never really come to herself all that day and night. She sat by the fireplace in the living room. George fed the children and eventually sent them off to bed. The boys didn't complain that it was too early, because they knew they'd have to get up for school. Evidently, the heating problem had been solved, because the local Amityville radio station had announced that the schools would be open the next morning. George had even helped Missy take her bath. He read his daughter a story before she let him turn off her light. The last words Missy said before he closed her door were, Good night, Daddy. Good night, Jody. Listen. tired of her. When he saw it was almost 11, George realized that Father Mancuso wasn't coming that night. Kathy had been dro- Kathy had been drooping in her chair for the past hour, her eyes closing with the warmth of the fire. Finally, she announced to George she was going to bed. George looked at his wife. Not once had she mentioned getting away from the house. It was as though none of the frightening incidents had ever occurred, and it was just natural for her to want to go to sleep. They went up to their bedroom together. Kathy mumbled that she was too sleepy to take a bath and would do it in the morning. 
She was asleep as soon as her head hit the pillow. George sat on the end of the bed for a while, watching Kathy breathe deeply. Then he went out to check on Harry. The dog was asleep again, his food untouched. George was about to reach down and shake the animal when he heard the marching band strike up in his house. He ran back in through the kitchen. The drums and horns were blasting away in the living room. George heard the stomping of many feet as he tore through the hallway. The lights were still on, but he could see there was no one in the living room. The very instant he could see... Oh, in the room. The very instant he could see into the living room, the music had cut off. George looked about wild. You son of a bitches, where are you? He screamed. George took in a great gulp of air. Then he realized there was something strange about the living room. Every piece of furniture had been moved. The rug had been rolled back. Chairs, couch, and tables had been pushed against the walls as if to make room for lots of dancers. Or a marching band. Okay, so my question is, is he the only person who can hear this marching band going on? Probably. Because the kids are in there, and they're asleep. Well, they're two stories high. But he also heard it from he outside. He was upstairs. He was also all the way outside at the dog pen and heard it. Yeah, but he was also upstairs the first time he heard it. Obviously, he's the only one that can hear it. It's, and what it is is probably a distraction. Yeah. Like pocket sand. Well, it, I mean, obviously it is because <clears throat> when he heard it the first time, he went downstairs. And when he came back up, Kathy was fucking floating above the bed. Going so, to the window. Probably be tossed yeah. out. Yeah. He was probably going to throw her out the window and then just go... Probably. So. Okay, so January 6th is what we're on now. Your story is very interesting, Frank, but if I didn't know your background as a pro, I'd honestly think you were a little nuts to believe in it. Chancellor Ryan got up from behind his desk and went to the new coffee machine across the room. Father Mancuso shook his head at Father Ryan's offer. Ryan then poured one black cup of... One black cup for Father Nuncio, the other chancellor, and one for himself. The chancellor sat back down at his desk, sipped some, sipped some of the coffee, then looked at his notes. In your capacity as a psychotherapist, how many times have people come to you with stories like this? Hundreds, I'll bet. Chancellor Ryan was an extremely tall man, even while sitting. He was six feet five, with a shock of white hair crowning in a crowning a ruddy Irish face. The priest was well known in the diocese for his open manner in speaking to the other clerics, be they young parish priest or the bishop himself. Chancellor Nuncio, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. Short, stumpy, black-haired, young at 42, while Father Ryan was well in his 60s. With this, And with a seriousness to his approach that perfectly completed... Com- completed... That perfectly complemented the other chancellor's softer touch. The two had listened to Father Mancuso's recounting of the episodes that George Lutz had said happened at 112 Ocean Avenue. And to his own humiliating experiences, including the latest one that had just occurred at the, re- at the rectory. They were impressed with Father Mancuso's fears that the phenomena had a demonic taint to them. Chancellor Ryan looked up from the pad on his desk and spoke to the troubled priest. Before we offer any suggestions on how you should handle this as a participant and as a priest, Frank, I think you should know the ground rules. Father Ryan nodded to Father Nuncio. The other priest put down his coffee. 
You seem to think that there's something demonic going on in the Lutz's house, that the place is possessed somehow. Well, let me reassure you that first of all, places and things are never possessed, only people. Father Nuncio stopped, reached into his jacket, and withdrew several short cigars. He offered them around, but the two priests declined. He lit up, puffing and talking at the same time. The traditional viewpoint of the church sees the devil in a number of ways. He tries through temptation, by which he is seen to prod men towards sin in the psychological battles which, with which I'm sure you're familiar. Oh yes, Father Mancuso nodded. As Father Ryan mentioned, I've seen and heard many who have come to me as a psychotherapist and as a parish priest. Chancellor Ryan picked up the thread. Then there are the so-called extraordinary activities in the devil of the devil in the world. Usually these are material things around a person that are affected. That might be what you're up against. We call it infestation. It breaks down into different categories, which we'll explain in a minute. Obsession, Father Nuncio put in, is the next step in which a person is affected, either internally or externally. And finally, there is possession, which the person temporarily loses control of his faculties and the devil acts in and through him. When Father Mancuso had come to the Chancellor's office to keep his appointment, he had been somewhat embarrassed as to how to approach his problem, but he relaxed as the two priests had shown keen interest. Now, with their spelling out the guidelines, he must take it, he must take in this kind of situation. Father Mancuso raised his hopes for deliverance from this evil. In investigation cases of possible diabolical interference, Chancellor Ryan went on, we must consider the following. We must consider the following. One, fraud and deception. Two, natural scientific causes. Three, parapsychological causes. Four, diabolical influences. And five, miracles. In this case, fraud and trickery don't seem plausible. George and Kathleen Lutz seem to be normal, balanced individuals. We think you are too. The possibilities, therefore, are reduced to psychological, parapsychological, or diabolical influences. We'll exclude the miraculous, Father Nuncio broke in, because the divine would not in involve itself in the trivial and foolish. True, said Father Ryan. Therefore, the explanation would seem to include hallucination and auto-suggestion, you know, like the invisible touches Kathy experienced, and when George thought he heard that marching band. But let's take the parapsychological line. Parapsychologists like Dr. Rhine, who work at the Duke University in Dorm, in Dorum, <laughs> my God, in Dorum. Dorum. Parapsychologists like Dr. Rhine, who works at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, define four main operations in the science. First of all, I want to say that I didn't know that Duke University had a parapsychology like thing. Duke University has like everything, dude. I know, but I mean, I've had, I mean, I, that's where I go for all my surgeries. I know they're medical, obviously, but like I didn't know that they were like, I didn't know they had a parapsychology like. Well, yeah, that's why they're the better shade of blue. That is true. They are. And if you think otherwise, you're wrong. 
Anyways, the the first three come under the general hearing of the general heating of ESP, extrasensory perception. They are the mental telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition, which could explain George's visions and picking up information that seems to coincide with known facts about the DeFeos. The fourth parapsychological area is psychokinesis, where objects move by themselves. That would be the case with the Lutz's ceramic lion, if it did move, he added. Father Nuncio got up to refill his cup. All of what we've said, Frank, is part of the suggestion we have for the Lutzes. Have them contact some investigative organization like Dr. Rhines to come in and look at the house. They'll do extensive testing, and I'm sure they can come to some conclusion short of diabolical influence. But what about me? asked Father Mancuso. What do I do? Chancellor Ryan cleared his throat and looked kindly at the priest. You are not to return to that house. You can call the Lutzes and tell them what we suggested, but under no circumstances are you to ever go there again. I thought you said I shouldn't consider a belief in such matters as this, Father Mancuso protested. Yes, I did, said Father Ryan, but you've got yourself worked up over this affair at the moment... That at the moment, the best thing you can do is to disassociate yourself from the Lutzes and 112 Ocean Avenue. After breakfast, Kathy dropped off the boys at their new school, then drove over to her mother's with Missy. George was alone in the house. He had gone down to the cellar to clear the odor with the two fans. But when he came down the stairs, there was no trace of any of the terrible stench that had made him vomit the day before. He sniffed but could find nothing, even when he went directly to the secret red room. George pulled the plywood paneling back open and flashed his light about the red walls. Damn, he said. It couldn't have disappeared just like that. There's got to be an air hole in here, down here somewhere. George was searching for that possible air vent when Father Mancuso dialed his number. After the meeting, the priest had driven back to his own apartment in the rectory, intending to call George with the chancellor's recommendations. He heard the telephone ring ten times before he finally hung up. Father Mancuso thought he'd try again later when the Lutzes came home. George was home all right, but he never heard the telephone ring. The door to the basement was open, and usually the ringing telephone could be heard anywhere in the house. George had no success in finding any opening where the stench could have escaped, but under the area where the front steps to the house had been constructed, he did discover something interesting. When the contractor had laid the foundation for the house at 112 Ocean Avenue, it seemed he had covered over a circular opening with a concrete lid. By squirreling around the dirt piled up against this protuberance, George accidentally loosened some of the old gravel around the base and heard it fall into water far below. So, oh well. He flashed his light and saw the beam hit against a wet black shaft. Oh well, he said aloud. That doesn't show up in the blueprints. It must have been left from the old house that was here before. What house was there before? This house was built in 1928. I bet some girl's going to crawl out of it. Stop. <laughs> He returned to the first floor and looked at the kitchen clock. Strange, he thought, it's almost noon and I still haven't heard from father. I'd better try him myself. George called the rectory, 
the priest picked up on the first ring. George was surprised when Father Mancuso told him he had just called and that there was no answer at the house. Then George asked Father Mancuso when he was coming and they got down to Father Mancuso's report. He said he'd been to see the chancellors of his diocese and repeated their recommendation that George find an organization to conduct a scientific investigation of the house. Father Mancuso gave George the address of the Psychical Research Institute in North Carolina and suggested he get in touch with them immediately. George agreed, but pressed the priest to come to his house. Not until many months after he and his family had fled 112 Ocean Avenue, George Lutz learned what Father Mancuso had suffered after he originally blessed their house or of his subsequent humiliations and afflictions. Therefore, when Father Mancuso again refused to come to the house, George became so confused. He said he really needed him, not some ghost-chasing outfit from somewhere down south. <laughs> Hurtful. <laughs> Hurtful. Oh, my God. And who he wanted to know, was supposed to pay for all of this. But after promising to call the parapsychologist and to let Father Mancuso know the results of the investigation, George hung up. He was still annoyed when he called Kathy at her mother's. George told her what the priest had said. George told her what the priest had said, but snorted that he wasn't going to bother with anything like that. But Kathy felt they should pursue the chancellor's recommendation telling George that he should listen to what the church suggested. Suggested. <laughs> Finally, George agreed, saying he would drive to his office on his Harley chopper. Oh, whoa. <laughs> whoa, he's got a Harley? Didn't know that. I just knew motorcycles. That means there's oil in his driveway. Oh, my God. It's a fact. Oh, my God. <laughs> Finally, George agreed, saying he would drive to his office on his Harley chopper and type out the letter to the people at Duke. He didn't tell her he also wanted to talk to Eric, the young fellow at his office, who said his girlfriend was a medium. Mediums? I Mediums are so hit and miss with me. I don't know why. I, I don't know. He... After talking to George, Father Mancuso felt a tremendous pressure lift from his shoulders. Just the fact that he had been able to share his burden with others cleared his head completely for the first time in weeks. The responsibility he had been bearing alone had been taken away by his superiors. The priest turned to prepping his work schedule for the following week. It took him several hours until dinner time to finally nail down the program he wanted for his counseling and for his patients. He ordered Chinese food from a nearby restaurant in the vicinity and wolfed down the meal while reading some clients' case histories. George rode to his office and mailed the letter to the parapsychologist, using the chancellor's name as his reference. He didn't really expect an immediate response to his request for an investigator, so he only put a regular stamp on the envelope instead of an airmail one. Then he telephoned Eric's girlfriend, Francine. She was terribly interested in what he had to say, sure that she could contact whatever or whoever was making his and Kathy's lives miserable. She promised to come to the Lutz's house with her boyfriend in a day or so. I don't think that her coming to the house ends up well. I just, I, I think, I'm not sure. Let's talk to the demonic spirit. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? Because I feel like I remember hearing something about this girlfriend and I, 
I don't think it ends up well. We'll see. It'll be be fine. There's Marine in the house. (laughs) According to George Lutz. Then the young woman said something that really made George's ears perk up. Out of the clear blue, she mentioned that George should look around his property for an old abandoned covered up well. He didn't admit that he already found such a place, but asked instead why she wanted him to do the searching. Her answer shocked him. I think she said that your spirits may be coming from a well. You can cap it off, you know, but I bet if you do find a well under your house, there's a direct passage to it. And somehow, even if it's a tiny crack, that's all it takes. With that, it can climb out of with that, it can climb out when it wants to. Told you shit's crawling from the whale. The what? The whale. <laughs> God. After thanking the girl and hanging up, George made a phone call to the Psychical Research Institute in Dorm. Why do I keep wanting to say Dorum? <laughs> I can't say it. In Durham, North Carolina, and told them the letter he and told them of the letter he had just sent. They agreed to send a field investigator as soon as possible. In turn, George agreed to pay the field man's expenses. Oh, my God. I don't even want to know how much that was. Father Mancuso, too, was on the telephone once more that night. The call came after 11 and was surprisingly from the priest who had helped him when his car fell apart on the Van Wick Expressway. Both clerics recalled the harrowing events of that evening, and Father Mancuso asked the other priest whether he had encountered any further trouble after his windshield wipers had gone berserk. No, his friend said. That is not until a few minutes ago. Father Mancuso's heart began to beat loudly against his chest. Frank, the other priest continued, I just got a peculiar phone call. I don't know who it was, but he said, tell the priest not to come back. What was he talking about? Father Mancuso asked. I asked that. I said, who are you talking about? The only voice answered, the priest you helped. The priest you helped? Yeah, I thought about that after he hung up and I couldn't remember anybody but you. Do you think he really means you, Frank? He never told you who it was? No, he just said, the priest will know who it is. What did he actually say? He said, tell the priest not to come back or he'll die. Dun dun. <laughs> oh my God. Dun dun. So this is, so we're still, we're still, this is January 6th, by the way. We're still, the he, he's getting ready to read January 6th to the 7th. So. January 6th to 7th. Earlier that day, Kathy had returned from her mother's house in time to pick up Danny and Chris at their new school in Amityville. The boys were eager to tell about their teachers, schoolmates, and playground facilities. The yard had been cleared of snow, and the children had been able to enjoy some activities outside. Missy, jealous at having to stay home, kept pumping her brothers about what girls at the elementary school were like. The whole family ate together at 6.30. George told Kathy he had done what he had done about Father Mancuso's suggestion, and that he had also spoken to the girl who could contact spirits. Kathy was glad that he had called the parapsychology people instead of just waiting for an answer to his letter, but she wasn't too happy about a stranger coming into her house to talk to ghosts, particularly a young girl like Francine. Oh, she jealous. But, (laughs) why? She has sex with this man every night. They haven't been. 
That doesn't matter. So you're telling me if I invited a, a very young girl into our house and said, yeah, she's just here to talk to spirits and check for ghosts, I'm sure you'd be perfectly fine with it. Would I be here? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you have to go out and do something. If, I, if I wasn't here, yeah, I'd have a problem and with it. And there is my point. <laughs> and there is my point. Exactly. She, ladies and gentlemen, she just proved my point. Oh, my God. After they had finished dinner, Kathy told George she really wanted to return to her mother's until she felt like the house was safe to live in. George reminded her that it was 10 degrees above zero outside, and snow was forecast by morning. Even though East Babylon, 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 East Babylon, even though East Babylon wasn't too far up the road, he didn't think she could make it from her mother's house back to Amityville in time to get the boys to school in the morning. Danny and Chris chimed in that they wanted to stay home. They had some work to, they had some homework to do, and besides their grandmother wouldn't let them watch television after eight o'clock. Kathleen finally gave in to their arguments, but felt uneasy about staying in the house another night. She told George she didn't think she could sleep a wink. Harry had been in the kitchen with them while they were eating, and Kathy had given the dog all the scraps of meat left over from dinner. I'm glad I'm glad that the dog is finally in the fucking house, by the way. Like, this dog has been outside this whole time. It's finally negative 10. Like, oh, bring the dog God. in. No, it's 10 above zero, so it's just 10 degrees outside. Oh, I'm outside. sorry. Excuse me. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm glad the dog's finally in the house. Before they went to bed, George thought that Harry might be better off staying inside that night. It was bitter cold out and only to get worse if the snow fell. Harry hadn't been served his usual dry food, and George thought the dog might be more alert after having some red meat. While the boys did their homework, Missy took Harry up to her room to play, but Harry didn't want to stay there. He was nervous and sniveling, Kathy noted, particularly after Missy had introduced Harry to her unseen friend, Jody. This bitch, this fucking child. I know, dude. We're gonna, th- this, this child needs to be thrown out a damn window. <laughs> Finally, the little girl had to close her door to keep Harry from running out. He crawled under her bed and remained there. Finally, Chris came down for for him. Harry scampered out of Missy's room with his tail between his legs, ran up the stairs to the third floor where he remained the rest of the night. At 12, when George and Kathy finally went up to bed, she went out like a light for the third night in a row, quickly falling into a deep sleep, her breathing heavy. But George, lying on his side with his back to Kathy, was wide awake, his ears alert for any signs of the marching band. (laughs) When he first noticed the snowflakes falling outside the window, he saw it was one o'clock on his wristwatch. The wind was rising, whipping the flakes about. Then he thought he had heard a boat moving on the Amityville River, but the bedroom windows didn't face the water, and George didn't feel like getting up from his warm bed to look out from Missy's or the sewing room windows. Besides, the river was frozen, so George ascribed the sound to the vagaries of the wind. Vagaries. I don't know what that is. Vagaries. Okay. <laughs> I'm illiterate. That's what it is. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> At 2 a.m., he began to yawn. His eyes were getting heavy, and his body was getting stiff from lying in one position. A short while ago, he had looked over his shoulder to Kathy. She was still flat on her back, her mouth open. Suddenly, George had the urge to get up and go to the witch's brew for a beer. He knew there was, he knew there were cans of brew in the refrigerator, but he kept thinking that they wouldn't slake his thirst. It had to be the witch's brew. 
and it didn't matter that it was two in the morning or that it was freezing out. He turned to wake Kathy to tell her he was going out for a while. In the darkness of the room, George could see Kathy wasn't in bed. He could see that she was levitating again, almost a foot above him, drifting away from him. Instinctively, George reached out, grabbed her hair, and yanked. (laughs) Kathy floated back to him and then fell back onto the bed. She awoke. George turned on the nightstand light next to him and gasped. He was looking at a 90-year-old woman, and her hair wild, a shocking white... The face, a mass of wrinkles and ugly lines and saliva dripping from her toothless mouth. George was so revolted he wanted to flee from the room. Kathy's eyes, set deep in wrinkles, were looking at him questioningly. George shuddered. It's Kathy, he thought. This is my wife. What the hell am I doing? Kathy sensed the fright in her husband's face. My God, what does he see? She leaped from the bed and ran into the bathroom. Flicking on the light above the mirror, staring at her own face, she screamed. The ancient crone George had seen was gone. Her hair was upset, but it was blonde again. Her lips were not drooling any longer, nor was she wrinkled. But deep, ugly lines ran up and down her cheeks. Okay, so that's not entirely, like, impossible. Like, with everything that's been going on and stressing out like they have been, I can see... Yeah, but overnight? Well, within hours? I mean, yeah, but I can see where... You, your face would get a little, like, wrinkly from being stressed. George, following Kathy into the bathroom, peered over her shoulder at the image. He, too, saw the 90-year-old visage had faded, but the long black slashes still cut deeply down Kathy's face. What's happened to my face? Kathy yelled. She torn to... She torn. <laughs> she turned to George, and he put his fingers up to Kathy's mouth. Her lips will, Her lips were dry and burning hot. Then he ran his fingertips gently across the deep ridges that were three on each cheek, extending from below her eyes down to her her jawline. I don't know, baby, he whispered. George took a towel from the rack next to the sink and tried to wipe the lines away. Kathy spun about and looked in the mirror. Her scarred face stared back at her. Running her own fingers down her face, she began to cry. Kathy's helplessness stirred George deeply, and he put his hands on her shoulders. I'm going to call Father Mancuso right now, he said. Kathy shook her head. No, we mustn't involve him in this. She looked at George's face reflected in the mirror. Something tells me he could get hurt. We'd better go and check on the kids, she said calmly. The children were all right, but George and Kathy weren't able to go back to sleep that night. They stayed in their bedroom with the lights out, watching the snowfall. Every once in a while, Kathy would hold her hands to her face, checking to see if the ridges were still there. Finally, the cold dawn broke. The snow had stopped, and there was just enough light for George to make out Kathy when she touched him on the shoulder. George, she said, look at my face. He turned from his position he had taken in a chair near the window and looked at his wife. In the dawn's weak light, George could see that the lines were gone. He put his fingers up to her face and touched her skin. It was soft again, with absolutely no trace of his disfiguring scars. They're gone, baby, he smiled gently. They're all gone. In spite of what Kathy had said during the night, George called Father Mancuso in the morning and caught the priest just before he went to early Mass. George told him that he had spoken to someone in North Carolina where, it, where a Jerry Sullivan had promised to have an investigator come to the house immediately. Then he brought up the incident of the night before. Father Mancuso was aghast about the second levitation and the alterations of Kathy's face. George... He said urgently, I'm worried about what could happen next. 
Why don't you just get out of that house for a while? George assured the priest that he had been thinking of just of doing just that. But first he wanted to see what Francine, the medium, had to say. Maybe she could help as she had claimed. A medium? Father Mancuso asked. What are you talking about, George? That's not a scientific investigation. But she said she can talk to spirits, George protested. In fact, Father, do you know what she said yesterday? She told me there's a well hidden under my house. My house, And she's right. I found one under the stoop and she's never even been here. Father Mancuso became angry. Listen, he shouted over the phone. You're involved in something dangerous. I don't know what is going on in your house, but you better get out. You mean... Just leave everything? Yes, just go for a while, the priest insisted. I'll talk to the chancellors again and see if they can send someone, maybe a priest. George was silent. He had been trying to get Father Mancuso to his house and been refused time and time again. The priest superiors had done nothing but suggest he contact some organization. Finally, he had someone who sounded as if she could actually help him and Kathy. Why should he just leave everything and walk out? I'll tell Kathy, Father. George finally said, thanks, as he was about to hang up. George, there's just one more thing, Father Mancuso said. I seem to recall that you and Kathy were into transcendental meditation at one time. Yeah, that's right. Do you still practice that, the priest asked? No. Yes. Well, we haven't really kept it up since we moved here, George answered. Why? I was just curious, George, that's all, Father Mancuso replied. I'm glad you're not doing it now. It might have been making you susceptible. I don't I don't understand how it would make them susceptible. Because you're releasing all control of your body to let good and bad in and out. And what is okay, so what is Father Mancuso's issue with the medium? Because they're playing. Do what? Mediums play. Oh. She's like, ooh, I can talk to spirits. Yeah, I'll go into your house and talk to it. I'm so sure. So it's the- not she doesn't. It's because she's not really connected to like God, probably. Well, and she's not connected to the church, and most mediums are considered to be pagans and witchcraft, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time. Yeah, but paganism isn't always that bad. They're Catholics. Eh, yeah. If you're not with them, you're against them. That's kind of how it works. <laughs> like, oh, they're so crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of how it works. And he's getting pissed off because he's like, he's like, hey, motherfucker. I know. <laughs> you came to me in confidence saying you're talking about all this dangerous shit. So you get some 16-year-old chick named Francine to be like, oh, I can talk to the spirits. Well, <clears throat> granted. Okay, okay. In his defense, Father Mancuso has refused to come out to his house for weeks now. So what yes, else but is he, he a, supposed to do? But he was also told he couldn't go back. And he told George, hey, I can't come back. No, he wasn't told that until a few days ago, though. I mean, that's fair. But, but. He's been ask. he's been asking him to come told, back. But they've been told, get the fuck out. And they refuse to do it. Well, maybe they don't have anywhere else to go. Well, how? Why not? I don't know. Because Kathy's been staying at her mother's house. With the kids. And George has been alone in the house. Well. That's his fault, then. I agree. And he keeps telling his family, you need to come back and spend time with me. I miss you. (laughs) And white people be white people. Oh, my God. Be like, all right, well, your dad's sad. Let's go visit him. And Jody. (laughs) You know, it's like, damn. Damn. And the girl was right about the well, right? But. Yes. But. But. You know how many houses got wells underneath them? A lot. Yeah. A lot. It's a convenience thing. 
oh, I need water. I don't have to go outside. Build a house over it. Yeah, but I can see where he's like, what the fuck? Because he found it and then she mentioned it. But that's the issue with that a lot of people have with mediums is they make very bold, wide mm-hmm. claims. And when they're right, quote unquote, it's like people just buy into it. Oh, yeah. So like you see the televised mediums and shit like that. It's like somebody important in your life has died, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a woman, wasn't it? Oh, my gosh. Yes, it was. It was It was my mother. Oh, my God. Well, you got a 50-50 fucking chance. Yeah. A woman died. A very important person died in your life. Yes. It was a woman, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. No, no, I'm seeing clearer now. It was a man. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you're, you're just, you're buying with broad statements. And then what people don't understand is they feed... Mm-hmm. They feed that information. Yeah. It's like, okay, my mother died. Okay, well, you must have been very close. We were the closest best friends. Oh, my God. Your mother had a tragic, tragic death. and she, Yeah, she died of cancer. She had it for years, didn't she? Yeah, she did. How do you know all this? Well, I'm just making broad fucking right. statements. And I'm getting it. Well, fuck, I could be a medium. I mean, it's like, it's not. I know. It, it's charisma is really, that's, I don't believe in mediums personally. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's where she did with George Lutz. It's like, hey, our house is haunted. You know, we got some weird shit going on. She's like, look for a well. They can climb out of a well and do all that stuff. So you're telling me that if he would not have found the well, he would have thought she was full of shit. Yeah. But in his brain, he's like, I already found the well. How could she have known? I know. And she even told him, well, a lot of houses have wells. Yeah, but not under them, though. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of houses have wells under them. Oh. A lot of houses. Convenience thing. Oh. I hey, don't... hey, you need water. We don't have any running plumbing. I don't know. I've only ever had, like, a well off the property. <laughs> or like. Well, you've never lived in a house that's more than 100 years old. No, and I never will. Right. But <laughs> up in New England, it's a lot more common because... Oh, they probably need it up there more often because if it's under the house, it might be... Where are you going to build in New England? Well, that, but I'm saying like with the winters and stuff. Right. You don't want to go outside in 10 degree weather when it when no. you need water. Right. Or or vice versa. You know, you don't. You did not. Just <laughs> I did just to piss you off. But yeah, it's a convenience thing. So up there, it's more common. Just like down here, you know, we had ACs before the North did. Mm-hmm. They didn't need them. Yeah. Well, the, it it would be hot for like a week or two, and then it, it wasn't really required. Right. So why would you spend all these thousands of dollars on a piece of equipment that you didn't need and you had to service it and all that stuff? Okay. Right after talking with George, Father Mancuso called the chan- chancery in Rockville Center. Unfortunately, Chancellors Ryan and Nuncio were unavailable, and their secretary could only promise to have them call the following day. The priest was extremely agitated and prayed that things would not continue to deteriorate until the church could bring its forces to bear against the evil that gripped 112 Ocean Ave. In his compassion for the Lutz's plight, Father Mancuso forgot about his own dilemma, but in a few minutes, he was violently reminded that he too was subject to the unrelenting influence. He began to shiver and shake. His stomach heaved and his throat tightened. The priest sneezed and his eyes watered. He sneezed again and saw blood on his tissue chancellor ryan's warning don't involve yourself anymore flashed across his mind but it was too late father mancuso had all the signs of another attack of the flu 
I've had the flu a bunch, and I've never, ever sneezed fucking blood. Yeah, I mean, I've never sneezed blood. I've never really got a nosebleed, though, so. But even still. The only time I've ever really had it when I get punched in the face. Oh, my God. I don't think I've ever had a nosebleed from, like, sickness. No, I've never had a nosebleed. Just violence. Or the other, or, or the one time I had a freaking, like a few weeks ago when I had a that like sinus issue going on, and I blew my nose, and it was just nasty. <laughs> Later that evening, Eric, the young engineer who worked at George's company, arrived at Lutz's house with his girlfriend Francine. Here we fucking go. <laughs> George immediately hustled the young couple out of the bitter cold and into the living room to warm themselves up in front of the big fire. They brought an infectious cheerfulness that had been missing at 112 Ocean Ave. George and Kathy responded, and soon the four were chatting away like old friends. But under George's exterior warmth, there was an urgency. He wanted Francine to look over the house. As he's trying to turn the conversation around to her experience with spirits, Francine beat him to it. Suddenly, she got up from her seat on the couch and motioned to George. Put your hand gently over here, she said. George bent over and waved his hand over where she pointed. Do you feel the cold air? Francine asked. Slightly, George answered. She's been sitting here. Now she's left. Now follow the couch. Feel it over here? George puts his hand near the pillow. Oh yeah, it feels warm. Francine beckoned George and Kathy to follow her. The three entered the dining room while Eric remained in the living room by the fireplace. Francine stood next to the big table. There's an unusual odor here, she said. I can't quite place it, but it's here. Woo! Do you smell that? George sniffed. Yeah, it's right here. It's it's a smell of perspiration. The girl headed to the kitchen, but hesitated before going into the breakfast nook. There's an old man and an old lady. They are lost spirits. Do you smell the perfume? Kathy's eyes widened. Quickly, she, took, she looked at George, who shrugged. Evidently, these people must have had the house at one time, Francine continued, but they died. Only I don't think they died in the house. She turned to George and said, I want to go to the basement now, okay? When George had first spoken to Francine on the telephone, he told her that the mysterious things were happening in the house, but without ever really spelling out what the phenomena were, nor what had actually taken place with Kathy and himself. He hadn't discussed the touchings in the kitchen nor the smell of perfume Kathy had experienced in any case. Francine had said she would rather draw her own conclusions after visiting the house and talking to the spirits who lived there. Now Francine descended the stairs to the cellar. The house is built on a burial ground or something like that, she said. She pointed to the large area of the basement where the storage closet was built. Is that new? she asked George. I don't think so, he answered. As far as I know, it was built all at the same time. Francine stopped in front of the closet. There are people buried right here. Something is over them. There is an unusual odor. This should not be stuffy at all like this. She was pointing directly at the plywood paneling that hid the secret room. Notice the chill? Her hands were moving, touching the wood. Somebody was murdered or even, or could have even been buried under here. But this seems like a new part. Like a new part was added on and over this grave. Did she just say that it shouldn't be stuffy in a basement? <laughs> I was <laughs> Like, Kathy what? wanted to run from the basement. <laughs> her husband noticed her discomfort and reached for her hand. Francine solved the dilemma. 
I don't like this spot at all. It's better that we go upstairs now. Bitch, you wanted to fucking go downstairs. <laughs> Without waiting for a response, she turned and headed towards the basement staircase. As they went up to the second floor, Francine's boyfriend, Eric, joined them. She stood in the hallway, holding onto the banister. I have to say that when I came up here, there was a whirling sensation. I felt a tightness on the right half of my chest. A pain? Kathy asked. Francie nodded. Very slight, very quick. Right as you turn the corner. It disappeared quickly. She stepped to the closed door of the sewing room. You've been having problems in here. George and Kathy both nodded. He opened the door, half expecting to find flies in the room, but there were none. He and Francine walked inside. Kathy and Eric hung back in the doorway. Suddenly, Francine appeared to go into a trance. Out of her mouth came a different voice, heavier, more masculine. I would like to make one suggestion to you. Most people find out their spirits are, and they find they like them. They don't want them to get lost or go away, but in this case, I feel this house should be cleared or exorcised. We must clear the demons. Exorcise the demons. <laughs> the voice coming from Saint Francine began to sound familiar to George. He couldn't quite place it, but he was sure he'd heard it before. Somebody's little girl and boys. I see bloodstains. Somebody hurt themselves badly in here. Somebody tried to kill themselves or something. Francine came out of her trance. I would like to go now. She announced to George and Kathy, It is not a good time to try to talk to the spirits. I have a feeling I should go. I was born with a Venetian veil, you know. I've heard of those before. George didn't know what she meant, but she promised George to return in a day or so. When the vibrations are better, she explained. <laughs> The couple departed almost immediately. Back in the living room, George and Kathy were silent for a long time. Finally, Kathy asked, What do you think? I don't know, George answered. I just don't know. She was hitting things right on the head. He stood up to put out the fire. I have to think about it for a while. Kathy went upstairs to check on the children. Again, Harry was staying with the boys since it was too cold out for even a rugged dog. George made his usual checks of all the doors and locks, then turned out the lights on the first floor. He went up the steps to his bedroom, then stopped before he reached the second floor landing. George saw that the banister above him was wrenched from its moorings, torn almost completely off the floor foundation. At a very instant, he recalled whose voice had been speaking to him through Francine. It was Father Mancuso. Right. <clears throat> so that, I mean, that kind of makes sense i guess like but at the same time she's also again again with the vagueness i know we're in a sketchy basement right in a sketchy mm -hmm. basement right yeah people were buried here somewhere in this area oh look a doorway yeah it shouldn't be stuffy in this there's something covering this yeah i don't right I and, don't. and then they're making the assumptions of we know there's a hidden plywood door behind there and the red room's there and the red room Right. Right. And then she goes upstairs and she's like, you're having problems with this room. Well, it's the only door that's shut in the entire house. Right. And then she walked in and said, something bad happened here. Somebody tried to kill themselves or somebody else. So. Well, she said, or something. Yeah. So she. So she doesn't even know. No. I know. I don't like this girl. And she's, I think she's full of shit. Oh, for sure. Okay, January 8th. On Thursday, Jimmy and his new bride, Carrie, returned from their honeymoon in Bermuda. 
They called Kathy from Mrs. Connors, and Jimmy told his sister that he would drop over later in the day. One of his first questions was whether she and George had found his $1,500. He was very disappointed when Kathy told him that there had been no trace of the envelope. It had taken George all morning to fit the second floor banister's broken anchor post back into the sockets. When the boys came down for breakfast, both wanted to help, but George shooed them out of the way, telling them that they had to go shopping for new shoes with their mother. No one, Danny, Chris, Missy, or Kathy, had heard the banister being wrenched off its post during the night. What had caused this latest damage in the house remained a mystery. George and Kathy had their own ideas, but did not voice them in front of their children. Finally, Kathy gathered herself together and herded the brood out the van out to the van to go shopping george took the opportunity to call eric he reached him at home and asked the young man if francine had said anything after leaving their home george was troubled to hear that the girl had been very upset with what she felt in the house she had told eric she didn't ever want to go back there the presence was much too strong she feared if she tried to walk to she feared if she tried to talk to whatever was at the Lutzes, she would be in danger of a physical attack. Jo- Eric, George asked, what's the Venetian veil she mentioned just before you left? From what Francine's told me, Eric answered, that's a call some babies are born with. A kind of skin covering like a thin veil over the face. It can be removed, but Francine says that the person is somehow blessed with a highly developed degree of clairvoyance. It, I know it's more common in like certain um, uh, cultures. Like uh, usually like... Well, see, the thing is I believe in clairvoyance. That I do yeah. believe. I do believe that, again, children and in innocence mm-hmm. are more likely to see spirits being shit like that well i know like like the venetian veil i've heard of it and i've like i've um i know a little bit about it and from what i understand it's 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 more prevalent in like mexican cultures or hispanic cultures and stuff like that well i feel like it's because they speak more about spirits and demons and, mm-hmm. well also and hispanic and cultures like and stuff with like they they are also they have a whole day dedicated, dedicated. to Muertos. to contacting the dead and being with the so they i think but you know I, whatever but i mean i do believe that yeah i also semi believe this girl's kind of full of shit oh yeah probably george hung up and sat in the kitchen for over an hour trying to think of where or how she could or where or how he could get help before it was too late the telephone rang it was george kakoris my god kakoris okay the telephone rang. It was George Kekaris, a field investigator for the Psychical Research Institute in North Carolina, who said he had been told to contact George and arrange to set up some scientific tests at the Lutz's home. Kekaris also said he couldn't make it that day since he was calling from Buffalo, but would try to get there the next morning. After speaking with Kekaris, George felt as if he had received a last-minute reprieve. Then, to pass the time until Kathy returned, he busied himself by taking down the Christmas decorations from the tree standing in the living room. Tenderly, he placed the delicate ornaments on spread newspapers for Kathy to repack in cardboard boxes, taking special care of his great-grandmother's beautiful gold and silver piece. All that Thursday morning and afternoon, Father Mancuso nursed his recurrent case of the flu. 
He had resigned himself to his newest affliction as another show of power and displeasure by the evil force he had alienated at twelve at 112 Ocean Avenue. This time, there had been no solicitous call by pastor by the pastor, even though Father Mancuso was sure the cleric had been informed of his new illness. He remained in his own apartment, resting in bed until the medication, using the medication he had been given on the doctor's previous visits. His fever ranged as high as 104 degrees. His stomach, oh my God, I can't read. His stomach hurt continuously, and as the day wore on, he alternated between chills and sweating. Fortunately, no marks had erupted on his palm, a sign that Father Mancuso interpreted to mean that he was receiving a lesser degree of punishment for involving himself again with the Lutzes. Father Mancuso hadn't even attempted to reach the Chancellor's office again. The priest felt the aches and pains would eventually lessen if he divorced himself from thinking about the Lutzes situation. And so he waited for Father Ryan or Father Nuncio to get in touch with him. At one point during the afternoon, in fact, the priest hoped that the chancellors would ignore his request for another audience. He passed the time by reading from his breviary. By four o'clock, Kathy had returned from shopping. Since the Lutzes still had Jimmy's car, there was no way for the honeymooners to travel unless they were picked up. Kathy volunteered to go after her, to go after her brother and his new wife. George vetoed her suggestion. The icy roads to her mother's in East Babylon were still in hazardous condition, and Jimmy's car had a stick shift, a gear system Kathy had never really mastered. George drove instead and was back in Amityville within the hour. Kathy was delighted to see Jimmy and Carrie again and spent the next hours eagerly listening to their account of every single moment they had spent in Bermuda. Well, I hope it wasn't every single moment. (laughs) <laughs> talking about the sex <laughs> the newlyweds also had a bundle of polaroid snapshots to go through with a detailed explanation behind each one jimmy didn't have a dime left he said but they had memories that would last a lifetime naturally they had brought some presents for the children and that kept danny chris and missy out of the adults way for most of the evening Rather than spoil the pleasant visit by recalling their own weird experiences since the wedding, George and Kathy simply shared the excitement of the other two. Eventually, Kathy and her new sister-in-law went upstairs to change the linen on Missy's bed. Jimmy and Carrie would be staying overnight in Missy's room while the little girl slept on an old couch in the dressing room down the hall. Jimmy explained to George his plans for moving out of his mother's house. He wanted to rent an apartment situated exactly between his mother's house and his new in-laws, who also lived in East Babylon. This way, both families would be placated for a while. Everyone retired fairly early. Before turning in, George and Jimmy checked the house inside and out. George showed Jimmy the damaged garage door but he didn't offer any explanation beyond the theory that it was caused by a freak windstorm jimmy who had been victimized of his money by an unknown source was suspicious of something else but he too kept silent and followed george as he checked the boathouse back inside they continued their tour of doors and windows until both were satisfied of with the security of 112 ocean avenue it was 11 o'clock when the couple said goodnight to each other. 
George knows that it happened at 3.15 a.m. because he had been lying awake for a few minutes and had just checked his wristwatch. It was then that Carrie woke up screaming. Oh, God, not her, too, he muttered to himself. George leaped out of bed, ran to Missy's room, and snapped on the light. The couple were huddled together in a bed, Jimmy cradling his sobbing wife. What's the matter, George asked. What happened? Carrie pointed to the foot of Missy's bed. Something was sitting there. It touched my, my foot. George approached the spot Carrie had indicated and felt the bed with his hand. It was warm as though someone had been sitting there. I woke up, Carrie continued, and I could see a little boy. He looked so sick. He was trying to tell me to help him. She began to cry hysterically. Jimmy shook his wife gently. Come on, Carrie, he said soothingly. You are probably having a dream and... No, Jimmy, Carrie protested. It wasn't a dream. I saw him. He spoke to me. What did he say, Carrie? George asked. Carrie's shoulders were still shaking, but gradually she looked up from her husband's cradling arms. George heard a noise behind him and a touch on his shoulder. He jumped, then looked around. It was Kathy. Her eyes were misty, as though she had been crying also. Kathy, Carrie cried. What did the little boy say? Kathy prompted her. He asked me where Missy and Jody were. At the mention of Missy's name, Kathy bolted from the bedroom and ran to the other side of the hallway in the dressing room. The little girl, oh, hold on. And ran to the other side of the hallway. In the dressing room, the little girl was fast asleep with one foot sticking out in the air. Okay, so she's obviously a psychopath too anyways. In like <laughs> We all know blankets keep you safe from the demons. <laughs> oh my God. Kathy lifted Missy's blanket and bent her leg back under the covers, then leaned down and kissed her child on the head. George came into the room. Is Missy all right? Kathy nodded. In about 15 minutes, Carrie had quieted down enough to fall asleep again. Jimmy was still nervous, but soon he too drifted off. Kathy and George had shut the door on the couple and returned to their own bedroom. Immediately, she went into the closet and took out the crucifix that hung inside. George, she said, let's bless this house ourselves. I don't... Can they do that? Yeah, anybody can bless a house. Okay. Most people have priests do it because a lot of people believe that you have to be strong in your faith. You, I mean, you don't have to be. You can just, you know... It's like praying over anything. Mm-hmm. You're asking for God to do it. Same yeah. way a lot of people have priests, pastors, and like ministers and stuff like that do it because they feel as though they don't have the connection with God to right. bless it themselves. But they they sense. probably do. They pro- I mean, they probably feel that they do. I think at this point, I don't really think they get the shit. Uh, exactly. They began on the third floor in the children's playroom. In the eerie pre-dawn silence of the cold room, George held the crucifix in front of him while Kathy intoned the Lord's Prayer. They did not go into Danny and Chris's room. Kathy said they could wait until the next day to bless their rooms and the ones in which Missy and Jimmy in which Missy and Jimmy and Carrie were sleeping. They moved on to their own bedroom and then the sewing room on the second floor. Warning his wife to be careful of the newly repaired banister, George led the way down the first floor, still brandishing the silver crucifix as he supposed a priest would during a holy procession. When they completed their blessing of the kitchen and the dining room, it was just starting to get light outside. Even without turning on the lights, they could see the living room dimly visible before them. George marched around the furniture and Kathy started to recite, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy... She was interrupted by a loud humming. Kathy stopped and looked about her and looked about... Yeah, and looked about her. George halted in mid-stride and looked up at the ceiling. The hum swelled into a jumble of voices that seemed to engulf them completely. Finally, Kathy clasped her hands to her ears to drown out the cacophony of noise, but George clearly heard the chorus thunder. Will you stop? They don't like the house being breast. No. So actually, I feel like that is a really good place to stop, though, because that probably leaves you guys on like a cliffhanger. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> so, I guess... Uh, I don't know. Shit's about to go down. For real. So, we'll just see what happens next time. I wonder. I'm really curious, though. We're almost done. I think we're going to finish the next part, because there's only, like, five chapters left. I just feel like everything they're doing in this house is just wrong, man. They're, like, making all the wrong decisions. I feel like they started out right with Father Mancuso. But now after, I just wish Father Mancuso was more like transparent with them. You know what I mean? Right. Like if he would just tell them what happened, what's happening to him, like the splotches on his skin, his fever, him being so sick, the smell in his well, room. Well, they're probably already going through enough, and Father Mancuso's like, I don't need to trouble them anymore. This is well, serious enough. yeah, but... At the same time, if it would get them to leave the house... Exactly, I would tell them anything I, that would need... But it's too late now, because as soon as, he, as soon as he told George, get the fuck out of the house, boom, sick again. Yeah. I don't know. Because since he's trying to help, now they, yeah. 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 I don't know. I'm just, sure it'll turn out fine. Nothing's bad ever happened in a haunted house. Well, they didn't, I don't think, did they, I don't think that the Lutzes died in the house. Did, I don't remember. I don't remember, but I don't think that they I did. I think about, they just left. I know more about the story of the Defoe's rather than the Lutzes. The, so. the Defeos. That's what I said. You said Defoe's. No, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> But, yeah, I, I don't think anything happened to, like, I don't think they died in the house or because of the house. I think they actually got out of the house. I'm not sure. We'll see when we get there. But, yeah. yeah. We'll learn together. Yeah. We'll learn together. Well. Yeah. Well. Literally found one. This well. is part four. And um, hopefully part five will be the last part because there's only, like, five chapters left in the book. Is there? Yeah. What chapter are we on now? 20. There's eight chapters left. Well, I think a couple of them are super short, though. We are on page 170. There's only 25 chapters. Oh. No, there's none. Yes, there is. And then you have the epilogue. Oh. So 226. We've got 50 more pages. I think we could probably do that in one episode, though. Maybe. I think we could do it in one more episode. Even if I feel like even if the last one is like a little bit longer, like fifteen minutes longer, maybe I think we'll be okay. What page did we start out today? Well, chapter sixteen. So we read three chapters today, four chapters. We read sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen. So we read four chapters. We only read fifty pages. Yeah, so we can read fifty more pages in the last part. Then well, it'll be a little bit more, but but still. It might be a little bit longer for the last part, but we'll definitely make 
part five the last part so we can <laughs> so we can yeah so we can we're not dragging this out exactly we've already dragged it out enough for you guys even though Drugged. whatever drug it out enough we didn't drag it oh so you want to talk to me about fucking english yeah vice versa shut up anyways we'll see you guys next time later thanks for coming to hang out with us and letting us tell you stories don't forget, you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at 3AM Tales of Terror. You can find pictures from each episode there, as well as our website, 3, the number 3, 3AM Tales of Terror.com. You can also subscribe with your email at our website for updates as well. If you have questions or story ideas for us, you can email us at info at 3AM Tales of Terror.com. If you want to support us, you can sign up to become part of our Patreon. There, you will get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. We hope you'll join us next week. And And we we hope hope you are terrified. terrified.